When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Be it therefore resolved by the Senate and House of Representatives of the State of Georgia in General Assembly met, that we conceive the conduct of Francis James Jackson, late resident minister from the Court of St. James, to have been highly insulting and censurable, and that with one voice we approve the spirited and decisive manner of the Executive of the United States in refusing further to negotiate with the British government through the medium of that minister. And be it further resolved that we, as citizens of Georgia and members of the Union, will ever be found in willing readiness to assert the right and support the dignity of our country whenever called upon by the proper authority of our national republic. And be it further resolved that His Excellency the Governor be requested to transmit these, our resolutions, to our senators in Congress, to be by them presented to the President of the United States, read and unanimously passed, Georgia General Assembly, 12th of December, 1809. As you can probably tell from our opening quote, dear listener, the tenure of Francis James Jackson as the new British Minister to the U.S. is going to go downhill rather quickly. Before we get into the details of that, though, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Andy from the History of Africa podcast for providing the intro quote for this episode. Studying the history of the various civilizations and generations that have called the African continent home is a monumental task. With the History of Africa, Andy works to explore this history civilization by civilization. The first season of the podcast focused on early Egypt, which was followed by a season on Aksum, and now Andy is guiding his listeners through the history of the Ashanti. I'm still working to get caught up on all the episodes, but I've been greatly impressed thus far by the research that has gone into this podcast and the attention to detail. I'll have information on the source notes for this episode, but once you get done listening, search for the History of Africa podcast wherever fine podcasts can be found, or go to History of Africa podcast, that's all one word, .blogspot.com. Before we talk more about Jackson's arrival in the U.S., I'd like to pick up where we left off with our last narrative episode with the resignation of Lord Portland as British Prime Minister. As discussed in that episode, a number of members of Portland's cabinet were vying for the opportunity to succeed the elder politician, but ultimately, there was only one viable choice. As Foreign Secretary George Canning and Secretary for War in the Colonies Viscount Castlereagh had recently been scandalized due to their duel, both of them were seen as unacceptable. Home Secretary the Earl of Liverpool was a possibility, but having just come off of a Prime Minister who had been in the House of Lords rather than the House of Commons, and the problems that had created with getting the government's agenda through, the choice wasn't seen as ideal. The Earl of Chatham, who was the younger brother of the late former Prime Minister William Pitt the Younger, was also mentioned as a possibility, but as he had been the military commander of the recent failed campaign 
to open up a new front against France in the lower countries, he was not held in the best of regard. Finally, the majority of the cabinet settled on the man who would become the next Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Spencer Percival. If you're doing a double take and wondering who this Percival person is, dear listener, let me reassure you that we've only mentioned Percival two times in the narrative. Once way back in episode 3.35, and then again last episode. I should also note that historian Dick Leonard writes that, quote, Spencer Percival has gone down in history as one of the least known of 19th century ministers. So you can be doubly forgiven for not knowing him just yet. Though he was born into an aristocratic family on November 1st, 1762, Percival was the fifth child from his father's second marriage. And as his father had seven children from his first marriage and nine from the second, he wasn't left with much when his father died when Spencer was only eight years old. He worked hard at his studies, first at Harrow School, then at Trinity College, Cambridge, from which he graduated. As so many politicians of the time did, Percival trained in the law, qualifying as a barrister in 1786. Though he had little to his name, he did fall in love the next year with Jane Wilson. However, her father refused to give his daughter a marriage to a penniless barrister. They ultimately decided to wait a few years until Jane was of age, though it is possible that the two eloped. The two would ultimately have 12 children total, six daughters and six sons. The adult Percival started making his way in the world, rising up to positions at higher courts and gaining lucrative council positions. To Percival's surprise, he received a letter in January 1796 from Prime Minister William Pitt offering him the post of Chief Secretary to the Irish government. As noted by Leonard, this, quote, offer included a promise of some provision of a permanent nature to help with his finances. To the surprise of the Prime Minister, Percival wrote back, declining the offer. Again, from Leonard, quote, Thus did the high-minded evangelical exclude himself from an arrangement which would have been regarded as absolutely normal by a vast majority of contemporary politicians without large private means. Not long after, Percival found himself put forward unopposed in a by-election that spring in Northampton, which made him a member of Parliament. He would have to actually fight for the seat in a general election shortly thereafter, but with the support of his cousin, the Earl of Northampton, Percival came out on top once more. Leonard notes that, quote, Percival made an immediate impact upon the House of Commons, largely by a rollicking speech roundly attacking Charles James Fox, which left the opposition squirming. Though not named government just yet, Percival's newfound notoriety did earn him a couple of appointed positions in the latter days of Pitt's ministry. When Henry Addington assumed the prime ministership, Percival was named first as Solicitor General, then a year later boosted up to Attorney General. He continued in this post during Pitt's return to power, but upon Pitt's death, Percival declined an offer to join the Ministry of All the Talents and instead went into the opposition. With the fall of the Grenville government, Percival found himself presented with two offices in the new Portland Ministry, Chancellor of the Exchequer and Leader of the House of Commons. While Leonard notes that, quote, Percival was highly reluctant to take on this double portfolio, preferring to resume his previous role as Attorney General, he did finally agree when he was granted the post of Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, which would give him what he saw as a viable salary for what would be a heavy workload. As House Leader, he would have to counter the opposition in debate. As Chancellor, in the absence of a First Lord of the Treasury, 
it fell on Percival, quote, to raise enough money to continue the war against Napoleonic France, which threatened to become a crippling burden. Though Percival had no experience at Treasury, his efforts were effective enough to allow the administration to, quote, maintain British garrisons in all parts of the world, subsidize Austria, Portugal, Sicily, and Sweden, launch the Walhorn expedition, and support Wellington's lengthy and expensive campaigns in the Iberian Peninsula. When Portland's ministry fell, the cabinet looked around and found that most of the contenders as his replacement were at that point disgraced, as we've discussed. Thus, they ultimately reached the conclusion that Spencer Percival was best positioned to be the next prime minister. It didn't hurt that King George III favored Percival due to their shared anti-Catholic views. The king asserted that Percival, quote, was perhaps the most straightforward man he had ever known. However, unlike in the American system, though Percival was tapped for the top post, he couldn't assume it until he formed a government. George Canning and Lord Castlereagh, two of Percival's rivals to succeed Portland, complicated matters by resigning from their respective post. With a lack of stability on the Pittite side of the house, Percival came up with the idea of reaching across the aisle to the former Prime Minister, Lord Grenville, and his former Foreign Secretary, the Earl Grey, about the possibility of forming a wide coalition government. Unfortunately for Percival, Grenville and Grey didn't realize that this was a legitimate offer and felt that they would just be tokens in a Pittite-dominated government and did not respond to Percival's overtures. Percival reached out to one candidate after another to fill positions in his ministry, and minus a few exceptions, most turned him down. Finally, after six weeks of grueling search, and upon agreeing to retain the post of Chancellor of the Exchequer despite his eagerness to pass it on, Percival was able to form a cabinet composed, quote, of nine members, seven of whom were in the House of Lords. The Earl of Liverpool moved over to become Secretary for War and the Colonies, Castlereagh's old position, while Marquess Wellesley became the new Foreign Secretary. It was far from an auspicious start, but the United Kingdom finally had a new government. Before you start wondering if this podcast has transformed into the Prime Ministerships of Great Britain, I'm going to have to ask you to trust me, dear listener, that this is going to be important to understanding the Anglo-American relations moving ahead in our narrative. For now, then, let's shift back across the Atlantic to where we left President Madison spending time with his predecessor and his Secretary of the Treasury back in Virginia in August 1809. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. As the three statesmen enjoyed quality time and discussed the issues of the day, one of them was considering his future. Albert Gallatin had been head of the Treasury Department for over eight years now, but the controversy over Madison's original intention to name him as Secretary of State and his recent conflict with the person who ultimately got the post, Robert Smith, had Gallatin thinking that the time had come to leave the cabinet. He confided as such to Jefferson. Jefferson let the idea mull over in his head and, a couple of months after Gallatin's departure, wrote to the Treasury Secretary on October 11th that, quote, it would be indeed a great public calamity 
were it to fix you in the purpose which you seem to think possible. I consider the fortunes of our republic as depending, in an eminent degree, on the extinguishment of the public debt before we engage in any war. The discharge of the debt is vital to the destinies of our government, and it hangs on Mr. Madison and yourself alone. We shall never see another president and secretary of the treasury making all other objects subordinate to this. Were either of you to be lost to the public, that great hope is lost. No pressure at all, Jefferson. None at all. Trouble for the administration, however, was not just from internal conflicts. On August 29th, the British frigate Lafricaine arrived in Hampton Roads. On board was the new British minister to the U.S., Francis James Jackson, and his family. Though it took the Jacksons a few days, they arrived in Washington, D.C. on September 8th, quote, with an entourage consisting of coachmen, servants, a carriage, and liveries. A few days later, on September 11th, Jackson's predecessor, David Erskine, took the new minister to meet with Secretary of State Smith. Smith wrote to Madison later that day about the meeting and his first communications with Jackson, asserting, quote, that he deemed it proper to introduce into my answer to Jackson some civility. It may do good. It can't do harm. That was not an opinion shared by all members of the cabinet, however. On September 6th, Attorney General Caesar Rodney apparently returned from wherever he had absented himself to when the rest of the cabinet was deliberating Madison's proclamation in August, deemed it prudent to write to the president with his opinion of Jackson. He proclaimed Jackson, quote, personally obnoxious to our country. We might say that we declined entering into a negotiation with a minister from whose personal character we could contemplate no favorable result and profess our willingness to treat with a more suitable person. In my humble opinion, a firm and honest course is justified by principle and precedent. A respect for our own dignity, insulted in some degree by the personal character of the man whom England has appointed, requires that we should act with a becoming spirit. Rodney cited the fact that the administration was working to develop stronger relations with other European powers, Denmark being one of them, as a reason to take a stand against Copenhagen-Jackson. Madison would at least have some time to consider his approach to the new British minister, for he didn't plan to return to Washington until the beginning of October. Smith did make overtures to Jackson about engaging in unofficial negotiations prior to Madison's return, as technically, Jackson did not become the official representative of the United Kingdom in the U.S. until he was received by the president. Jackson wrote back to the British government that he felt that Smith was aiming, quote, to discover what was in Jackson's instructions before the latter was officially received by the president, most likely so that Smith and the government would know how to react in light of Napoleon's crushing victory over Austria at the Battle of Wagram, as we discussed back in episode 4.5. No, Jackson replied, he was okay with waiting for Madison's return before getting down to business. Realizing that the British diplomat wasn't budging, Smith ended up leaving town for a few days to return home to Baltimore, and Gallatin wrote to Madison on September 11th that, quote, I do not think that there is any necessity to hurry yourself beyond your convenience in returning here. Though he had not met with Jackson himself, Gallatin felt, quote, that he has nothing to say of importance or pleasant. I think, on the contrary, that the present delay is favorable. 
it may give us time to hear the result or prospect of Mr. Armstrong's negotiations with France, and it may give Mr. Jackson time to receive more favorable instructions issued after the late events in Germany. The administration seemed to be clinging to the hope that, with the collapse of yet another Allied coalition with the defeat at Wagram, the British ministry may shift from the intransigent stance that they had taken to date in order to avoid getting into conflict with yet another nation. Jackson used the opportunity, quote, to enjoy Washington and its environs with his family. They purchased some saddle horses and rode about the countryside. Jackson was surprised that no one mentioned the great beauty to him before. Jackson also gathered information on what his predecessor had been up to by reading through his correspondence as well as examining American newspapers to get a sense of public sentiment. As described by historian Tom Armstrong, quote, Those that were pro-Madison shocked him. The abuse that had been heaped upon the British government angered and insulted him. Perceiving them to be full of falsehoods and violent language, he felt that the disavowal of the Erskine Agreement was being portrayed as a deliberate deception. He refrained from publicly stating that the American government was actually encouraging these accusations. The more he read, the more he seethed, and the more he prepared, quote, to give them blow for blow upon the president's return. Before we get to that, though, let's check in on U.S. Minister to France John Armstrong since it's been a bit since we talked about him. Episode 3.39 by my calculations. Though Armstrong had remained at his post in Paris through the presidential transition, he had written to then-Secretary of State Madison in late October 1808 that he was making no progress in negotiations with the French government and, indeed, had been told point-blank by French Foreign Minister Champagny, quote, that the emperor was too busy to consider American affairs. Armstrong thus concluded that, quote, I do not longer see a public reason for keeping a minister here. Neither general law nor particular treaties have any obligation with France. If the president is of my opinion, he will recall me in the spring. While I waited on his recall order, Armstrong took the liberty of sharing his opinion on administration policy. He wrote on February 16, 1809, strongly urging the government to repeal the Embargo Act and instead adopt a non-intercourse act that would open trade to all nations but Britain and France. Ironically, this was exactly the action being debated in Congress at that point, and that would ultimately pass. In a subsequent letter, Armstrong took things a step further and recommended that the U.S. declare war on both Britain and France at the same time. Armstrong's reasoning went as follows, quote, A war with either nation exclusively would paralyze half of your enemies, whereas a war with both will put into motion every drop of American blood and will be followed by many other useful consequences, including shifting the business climate to favor, quote, more secure and independent channels of useful manufacturers. Before you think that Armstrong was completely irrational, we should note that he felt, quote, the war with France would be nominal, a mere war of words and paper, and would allow the U.S. an opportunity to claim the Floridas as their own, while the war with Britain, while more involved, would secure Canada and Nova Scotia for the Americans. Needless to say, President Madison and Secretary of State Smith did not give much credence to Armstrong's recommendations in this particular letter. Meanwhile, news of the Non-Intercourse Act and the Erskine Agreement changed the climate with which Armstrong was faced in Paris. 
If the U.S. resumed trade with Great Britain, this would put Napoleon and his empire at a disadvantage, as the French Navy, such as it was, could not compete against the British Navy on high seas. It had enough trouble enforcing the emperor's continental system, blocking trade between Britain and the European mainland. Armstrong was approached by an agent of Napoleon's to discuss the possibility of altering the French commercial decrees to which the American government objected. Finally, there appeared a glimmer of hope of diplomatic progress. As soon as news that the British government had repudiated the Erskine Agreement, though, the negotiations stopped, and all Armstrong heard were crickets once more. This doesn't mean that Armstrong was completely on the outs with the French government, as some U.S. ministers in Paris had been in the past. As described by Armstrong biographer C. Edward Skeen, quote, Despite his abrasive personality, there is ample evidence to substantiate Armstrong's claim that his standing with the French government was good. He had established cordial relationships with many French officials. Armstrong's pugnacious disposition, however, forbade the ingratiating obsequiousness so often practiced by diplomats. At times, he might have achieved greater success by engaging in the diplomatic game of thrust and parry. But to Armstrong, this was a waste of time. In the end, it always came down to the basic facts, and he perceived, probably correctly, that playing the game only allowed the French to procrastinate and manipulate diplomats to their advantage. We'll leave Armstrong there for the moment and return to Washington, D.C. as the fall of 1809 settled in and the nation's politicians began to migrate back to the capital city. The Madisons departed from Montpelier on September 29th on their return to Washington and arrived on schedule on October 1st. The day after his return, Madison met with the outgoing British minister, David Erskine, formally ending his diplomatic tenure in D.C. The next day, Secretary of State Smith escorted Francis James Jackson to meet with Madison at the president's house. As described by the new British minister, quote, the conference was very different from any that Jackson had had with sovereigns in Europe. It started with Smith receiving him in, quote, a pair of dusty boots and his round hat in his hand, far from haute couture for European elites at the time. When he was received by Madison and the two sat down, Jackson was presented with, quote, seed cake and punch as a refreshment. At least on the surface, it seemed like the first meeting went cordially enough, though Jackson would later describe President Madison as, quote, a plain and rather mean-looking little man of great simplicity of manners and an inveterate enemy to form and ceremony. And Dolly Madison, who hosted Jackson's wife while the two men talked, was described by Jackson as, quote, fat and 40, but not fair. It seems that, initially, Madison took Secretary Smith's advice in working, quote, to stroke Jackson's diplomatic ego with kindness. This did not, however, make the negotiations between Smith and Jackson go any easier. The formal negotiations began on October 4th, the day after Jackson was formally received, and they quickly devolved into a frustrating back and forth from entrenched positions. As noted by Armstrong, quote, it must have been obvious to Smith that Jackson's instructions were narrowly construed, convincing Smith that the British government was far from serious about improving relations between the countries. This time, in order to avoid the misunderstandings that had developed in the Erskine negotiations, Secretary Smith asked to see Jackson's instructions 
to make sure the Americans were clear on how much latitude Jackson had in their deliberations. Realizing that the negotiations between Smith and Jackson were going nowhere, Madison intervened and, on October 9th, wrote to Jackson asking that all, quote, future communication be in writing. This was followed by a letter from Smith the same day outlining that Jackson's instructions only allowed for Canning's conditions, which were unacceptable to the administration, and thus concluded, quote, that the British minister was not prepared to accommodate the Americans at all. Jackson responded on the 11th by asserting that, quote, there does not exist in the annals of diplomacy a precedent for the abrupt end of verbal communications between diplomats. He then, quote, insinuated that Smith had enticed Erskine into signing an agreement which the Secretary of State knew was not allowable according to Erskine's instructions. This reflects not only Jackson's low opinion of his predecessor, but also implies that the Americans were willing to employ less than honorable means in order to get their way. Smith sat on this letter for a few days, while Madison employed a bit of social diplomacy by inviting the Jacksons to the president's house. By the 19th, though, Smith was ready to reply, and he did so with a 4,000-word letter. First, he retorted that British Foreign Secretary Canning had employed the same shift from verbal to written communications with U.S. Minister to Britain William Pinckney in July of that year. So much for there not being a quote-unquote precedent for such. Smith then went on to argue that the British government had thus far neither offered an explanation for why it repudiated the Erskine Agreement, nor any alternative proposals that were acceptable to the U.S. government. Madison was waiting for both from Jackson as the British government's diplomatic representative. As described by Armstrong, quote, this letter was straightforward and certainly put Jackson on the defensive. To him, many of Smith's remarks bordered on insult. But since there seemed to be no desire on Jackson's part to settle the disputes between the two countries, the relationship between Great Britain and the United States was likely not adversely affected. Indeed, on October 23rd, the Jacksons were again guests at the president's house, and unlike the pell-mell controversy during Anthony Mary's mission to the U.S., President Madison opted to follow standard diplomatic dining protocol and took Elizabeth Jackson to dinner, while Francis James Jackson escorted Dolly Madison. That same day, Jackson responded to Smith's note and continued to assert, quote, that the President and Secretary of State were responsible for Erskine's violations of his instructions. Smith came down with a cold, which prevented him from responding immediately, but on November 1st, he took things up a notch with another letter. Again, he, quote, demanded to see Jackson's full diplomatic powers as an indispensable preliminary to future negotiation. He also condemned Jackson, quote, for his insinuations and accusations which had cast aspersion on Smith's and Madison's characters and asserted, quote, that such insinuations are inadmissible in the intercourse of a foreign minister with a government that understands what it owes to itself. Jackson responded again on November 4th, but at that point, Smith and the administration had had enough. On November 8th, Smith wrote to the British minister, quote, to inform you that no further communications will be received from you and that the necessity of this determination will, without delay, be made known to your government. Just over a month after starting his official residency in Washington, Francis James Jackson's tenure 
as British minister to the U.S., was now at an end. Both sides in this negotiation would have to defend their actions in this diplomatic failure. For Jackson, the timing could not have been worse, for he learned around the same time from the National Intelligencer about the government reshuffle in London and the fact that his benefactor, George Canning, was no longer in charge of the Foreign Office. This could have been disastrous for Jackson, but he found allies in the form of Federalists in America. With the repudiation of the Erskine Agreement, the Federalists had resumed their standard anti-Madison stance, and they reached out to Jackson to commiserate. As described by historian Robert Allen Rutland, Jackson was, quote, told by vindictive Federalists that Madison was a weakling who was out of touch with the American people, an opinion which, of course, Jackson relayed back to London. Jackson expressed his own negative summation of the president by writing, quote, Madison is now as obstinate as a mule. To anyone he could think of, he sent letters defending his conduct and asserting not only the fact that he had simply followed the instructions given to him by Canning, but also that, quote, by bringing his family to America, he showed his zeal for his mission, and he had 12 years of successful service to demonstrate his competence. Elizabeth Jackson also got in on the defense as well, writing to a correspondent that, quote, Francis, being accustomed to treat with the civilized courts and governments of Europe, and not with savage Democrats, half of them sold to France, has not succeeded in his negotiation. The Jacksons packed up their belongings after having unpacked only a couple months prior and started making their way up the eastern seaboard, being fed it by Federalists along the way. In a break from typical protocol, Jackson did not leave a chargé d'affaires in charge of the mission in Washington. But part of that may be explained by the fact that Jackson had no clue as to what the Percival Ministry would instruct him to do. The Jacksons stayed in Philadelphia for a bit before moving on to Baltimore to await word from the British government. This time would allow Jackson an opportunity to gather more information and establish stronger relations with high Federalist leaders. Jackson also traveled to Boston, where, according to Rutland, he, quote, was treated as a celebrity, and not unnaturally, his head was so turned that he told superiors in London that Madison's administration was discredited, forlorn, and following a foreign policy line dictated by Napoleon. Madison, meanwhile, had to think of how to approach this on the domestic front. The news that he had come to an agreement with Erskine had been met with such widespread acclaim that the walk back of that had been painful enough. But then, to end up with no agreement, or any hope of one in the foreseeable future, put him and his administration in a difficult place politically. Democratic-Republican leaders in various parts of the country helped him by sending messages and memorials from public meetings, as well as resolutions such as the one read at the beginning of this episode, to indicate their support of Madison's decision to end negotiations. Madison wasn't just going to rely on others to come to his defense, though. He actually had a golden opportunity coming up at the end of the month, for the 11th Congress was set to come back into session at the end of November, and that was typically the time that the president sent over his annual message. On November 29th, Madison's private secretary, Isaac Coles, carried the president's message to the Capitol and read it aloud to the assembled legislators. The message began as follows, quote, At the period of our last meeting, 
I had the satisfaction of communicating an adjustment with one of the principal belligerent nations, highly important in itself, and still more so as presaging and more extended accommodation. It is with deep concern I am now to inform you that the favorable prospect had been overclouded by a refusal of the British government to abide by the act of its minister plenipotentiary and by its ensuing policy toward the United States as seen through the communications of the minister sent to replace him. He then went on to present the correspondence between Smith and Jackson as proof positive, quote, that forgetting the respect due to all governments, he, i.e. Jackson, did not refrain from impudiations on this, which required that no further communications should be received from him. Additional information would be routed through U.S. Minister to Britain William Pinckney, and Madison assured Congress that, quote, the British government will learn at the same time that a ready attention will be given to communications through any channel which may be substituted. Despite the unpleasant news that made up the majority of the message, Madison concluded his report with the following, quote, In the midst of the wrongs and vexations experienced from external causes, there is much room for congratulation on the prosperity and happiness flowing from our situation at home. The blessing of health has never been more universal. The fruits of the seasons, though in particular articles in districts short of their usual redundancy, are more than sufficient for our wants and our comforts. The face of our country ever presents evidence of laudable enterprise, of extensive capital, and of durable improvement. Recollecting always that for every advantage which may contribute to distinguish our lot from that to which others are doomed by the unhappy spirit of the times, we are indebted to that divine providence whose goodness has been so remarkably extended to this rising nation. It becomes us to cherish a devout gratitude and to implore from the same omnipotent source a blessing on the consultations and measures about to be undertaken for the welfare of our beloved country. There would be much for the President and his administration to consider on how to provide for the welfare of the United States as 1809 drew to a close. Though the administration was still less than a year old, new partners would be needed in the work, and the first indication of that came in the midst of the frustrating negotiations with Jackson, for it was in late October 1809 that word arrived in Washington, D.C. of the passing of the governor of the Louisiana Territory, Meriwether Lewis. We'll discuss Lewis's untimely death in further detail next episode, for our time together is drawing to a close. Special thanks again to Andy from the History of Africa podcast for providing the intro quote for this episode. And be sure to check out the History of Africa podcast, available anywhere fine podcasts can be found. Special thanks also to Christian from Your Podcast Pal for his audio editing work on this episode. If you'd like to enlist Christian's help with your podcast or audio project, check out his website at yourpodcastpal, that's all one word, dot com. Special thanks also to the Itinerant Band for providing clips from their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty as the intro and outro music for this series. More information about the Itinerant Band, as well as the History of Africa podcast and your podcast pal, can be found on the website, Presidency's Podcast, that's all one word, dot com. There, you can also find sources used for this episode, past episodes, and ways that you, yes, you, dear listener, can help support the podcast. Speaking of support for the podcast, 
A special thanks to our newest patron, Matthew. I cannot say enough thanks to our patrons who help to offset the cost of podcasting, including monthly hosting fees and purchases of equipment and sources used to ensure that we're able to do the deep dive into history for which this podcast is known. For anyone who would like to support the podcast as a patron, just go to patreon.com slash presidencies and sign up. For folks looking for other ways to support, leaving a rating and review for the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Good Pods, Spotify, or any other platform that allows for that is a quick and impactful way to give the podcast a boost. There's a place on the website that directs you in one place to various platforms in which you can leave a rating and review. Thanks to all who have left a rating and review thus far. I greatly appreciate the kind words that so many have left to share why folks should give presidencies a listen. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out via email at presidenciespodcast, again, all one word, at gmail.com. Also, feel free to connect with me on social media if you don't follow me on there already. I'm available on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast, as usual, all one word. Finally, thanks to all of you for listening. I look forward to continuing this journey through presidential history together with the next episode. Until then, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.